Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. You're listening to The Private Collector. Hang on to your hats. Things are about to get weird. Episodes of The Private Collector are heard first, ad-free, by supporters of the show. To support the show and gain access to episodes of The Private Collector a year before anyone else hears them, support the show on patreon.com forward slash wicked library or with a membership at thewickedlibrary.com. Today's episode of The Private Collector features the voice talents of Daniel Foytek, Nelson W. Piles, Graham Rowett, Erica Sanderson, Addison Peacock, and Rotimi Adelikan. The Big Easy, As the Crow Flies, Part 2. I clenched my teeth and studied the faded, worm-eaten map. The Packard family crest splayed across the top like it was a thing of beauty. Made me want to spill my guts. I'd gotten the map from the Baron Samdi. I knew where the island was, could find my way there on my own, but that wasn't how this was meant to play out. The librarian said there was no getting there without being guided by one of Amadie Philippe's own, and I took him at his word. He also hadn't found it worth mentioning that this was more Packard doings, and I figured there was a reason for that too. I headed back to the St. Charles, put out the Do Not Disturb sign, and double-locked the door behind me. After a long, hot shower, I dragged out my smaller suitcase also double-locked, and threw it open. This was my working kit, the tools I needed to conduct my kind of business when I was on the road. There was decks of tarot cards and a collection of sticks and pointing bones, scratch weeds for working up a quick effigy, or some of Maurice's whatnots. There was inks and quill pens and paper made out of stuff I won't even say. In there I had painted rocks, charmed tokens, and blessed shells chimmy wands, juju beads on cords of braided corpse hair, sage smudge bundles and little leather pouches of potions and herbs. There was feathers and strips of animal hide and hex keys and rosaries too, from religions I knew about and some I'd never even heard of. There were a few books I always kept nearby and one I had on my person at all times, except when I was showering. I had plenty of floor wash, too, the good kind, and all manner of smelly stuff for burning and just splashing around. 
I even had a small trumpet horn made out of brass and human bone for calling things up out of the snow. There was masks in there, too, for when I needed to become somebody or something else. I had veve boxes and ash, dog's teeth, chicken feet, just in case, and even a small black mirror. It was this last I took out and placed on the bed next to me. Then I drew up my legs, took a deep breath, and stared into the center of the thing like I'd lost something real important at the bottom of a pond. From my pocket, I pulled out the little cloth doll with the seashell eyes and lock of my own hair. It was filled with sand and ash and other secret things known only to its maker. This was my most precious thing I owned in this or any other world, and it was a treasure made up with Mama Cartwright's own two hands. I held that doll as protection and a key to doors I needed to rip open in my work. There's a particular way your mind kind of slips to one side when you're looking at things with the juju sight. Something between hearing and seeing, but with a whole different sense. When things are going right, you get a feeling like somewhere is opening up inside and you're being filled up. There's also another feel, too, when something's come into the room. You know when it's on you, like having a fish on your hook, but there's no mistaking it. Before long, I had my fish, and it was an ugly one, but kind of pathetic, too. I needed someone who was part of Amadie Philippe's tribe, somebody known to him who could get me inside. And there he was. I had no idea who it would be that appeared in that mirror, but I should have guessed. The long, pointed nose, a nasty bump on one side where somebody had broken it twice, the sunken cheekbones, and the eyes that were too black and never seemed to focus. The long black hair was greasy as usual, and the face could have used a good wash. The face of Gordy Gidry, a man, unfortunately, known to me, came into view in the mirror like he was looking at himself. He'd always been a river rat, raised himself from a knee-high, and it showed. He'd been a pitiful little thing, even as a kid. Gordy had had his fingers in every crime and shady deal back in the day. And when there was nothing special brewing, he'd get down to senseless brawling and all manner of generalized cruelty. I wasn't surprised Gidry had got himself mixed up with the worst sort of black juju. And if the Packards of the Hudson River were any indication, Gordy had come home to roost and was in way over his head. Now, the good thing about the black mirror is you can see them, but they can't see you unless what you're looking at is unusually powerful or something not of this earth. Gordy Gidry was born of the black mud of the Mississippi, but there was no mistaking him for a thing of power. I shut my mind, covered the mirror, and put it away. I had what I needed. Gordy would be easy to find. Even back in the day, only a couple of two-bit dives would let him in the door, and if that old son was awake, he was someplace looking to get soused. I went down to Shandy's on Canal Street, and there was Gordy, propped up on a stool nursing a highball. I went up and sat down next to him. The place was mostly empty this time of day, 
so I ordered a beer, pretending I just happened to walk in. Paying him no never mind, I watched him in the mirror over the bar. You can see a lot more watching somebody in even an ordinary mirror, but before long, he caught my eye. Gordy? It can't be you, old boy, I beamed, pretending I'd just seen him. Frank, is that you? When'd you get back in town, Shag? Gordy called everybody Shag. Just got back today, I said, hoping to cut to the chase, and then Amscray out of this dive. Well, how do, how do? He continued, grinning at me. As you see, my man, as you see, I said, taking a plug on my beer. Say, I added, all after the fact, like I just thought of it. You still running folks through the bayou on that old boat of yours? Another thing, Gordy had the stench about him real bad. Not a real smell like he needed a bath or anything, though he could sure use a hosing down. The stench is what folks get when they've been stewing in the bad juju for too long. It kind of seeps into the skin and bones, and no amount of washing will ever get rid of it. You gotta go someplace, Shaggy? I got business, see, but I can always make time for the nickels and greenbacks. Yeah, I need to go into the bayou a ways. Say, maybe five miles west of the old Cartwright place? You know it? Gordy eyed me for a minute like he was thinking something over. Then he grinned and slapped me on my back. Sure do, no real good. Let's head out now, sure. I'll take you right now, Shag, he said, still grinning. Then he was up on his feet, sobered up and raring to go at the prospect of nickels and greenbacks. All right then, I said. We walked the mile and a half to where his wreck of a boat was moored. Then we hoisted aboard and were chugging out toward the bayou. Boat was a real generous stretch. It was a stripped-down old tug that must have seen damn near a hundred years of hard labor before being scuttled and then snagged for nefarious purposes by Gordy. But it served him for crawfishing and some gator hunting and ferrying folks around who were too down and out for their own flat boat. About an hour out, I heard some squawking overhead and looked up to see some crows flying in a V formation, raising cane and beating their wings against the wind. Ain't that the damnedest thing? Gordy bellowed. Ain't never seen crows do like that. Let me get them, he yelled, pulling an old rifle from under a tarp. As he aimed and was about to let loose around, I rammed my fist hard into his gun arm. No, you don't. We don't got time for that shit. You just keep your eyes on the water and keep us moving. Gordy growled something about missing dinner, but I didn't bother to catch it. I wasn't sure if I knew those crows or not, but it sure looked like them, and I wasn't taking any chances. Besides, nobody's killing any crows on my watch. Four times we turned into denser, more overgrown branches of the waterway that took us deeper into the bayou. The trees hung so thick with Spanish moss and other vines and creepers that only twinkles of sunlight broke through the vault of cypress. Spidey was singing his head off too, and I had the whim-wham something fierce. I knew I was heading into the deep end of the swamp, and before it was over, I'd probably wish a big old gator had reached up over the prow and grabbed me into the depths of a wholesome demise. But there was no turning back. After about an hour and a half of this, we turned again into a stretch of water 
that was barely wide enough to navigate the tug through. Gordy had been strangely quiet, and I glanced back at him steering from the wheelhouse, but he just tugged on his cap and nodded as I kept point on the bow, staring deep into the Spanish moss and keeping watch on the water that flowed sluggishly against the hull and lapped up in little spirals in the inky muck. And the smell. Gads, for the third time that day, my guts roared in protest and threatened to expel their contents. As I stuck my head over the water just in case, something floating just off the bow caught my eye. I thought it was a kid's ball or an old rotted melon. A closer look as we sailed past showed me it was a human skull bobbing obscenely in the black waters. I pointed to it, and Gordy just nodded. I wasn't even sure he'd seen it. Then I saw another of the wretched things, and then another, and then several more bobbing slowly up and down in the water. I narrowed my eyes and clasped my juju doll where it lay in my pocket. In a single movement, the heads all turned to look at the boat, or rather, at me. The skulls, better than a hundred of them now, separated and made a pathway as the prow of the boat cut its way through. Flanking us closely on either side, the heads looked like some sort of strange guard. Before I could turn to look at Gordy for confirmation of what I was seeing, I felt something hard and cold press into the back of my neck. Sorry, Shag. We both know what you's coming out here for. Half all the while, and there's no more need for any play acting, yeah? Gordy said, his voice calm and clear of any drunken speak. I'd been had. I'd been stupid, relying on memory of this guy from times gone past. And I'd been had. I turned and looked at him. He was pointing the old rifle at me. The heads were now all facing ahead of us, and we were following them in. Taking a look at the ones near the side of the boat, I could see the rotted bodies dangling at the end of those heads, and they weren't altogether human-looking, and not altogether not-human-looking either. Whatever was going on out here was the big league, and, being taken off my guard as I was, I'd have to play things by ear and hope whoever was pitching for my team was up next from the dugout. Hey, Gordy, I thought we was old pals. We go way back, you and I. You know the score. I need the juju, my man. Where there's power, you'll find old Frankie Enfield. Sure thing. Well, no holding out now. Who's out here? And what's the play? You got one of them old mambos stashed out here? I asked knowing what I was suggesting was a real laugh in the face of what I was seeing here, but it gave me time to get a bead on old Gordy. You'll see. They'll make you right at home, sure will. <laughs> Why, you might even see some old pals of yours out there, you might. Or some part of them. He roared, laughing at his own joke. Only thing was, I knew what he meant, and it just made me piss fire mad and steeled my resolve. Now set your ass down and keep your yaps shut. I'll use this on you, old pals or not. He spat in contempt. I did as I was told and heard him add to himself under his breath. Old pals. And then he spat a wad in the water and wiped his slobbery mouth with the sleeve of his shirt. 
The waterway was widening out a bit, and a big island was coming into view. The trees were so thick with moss and vines, I couldn't see what lay beyond the banks except a few flickering lights here and there, and some rooftops. The boat threaded its way slowly toward the island, flanked by its guard of haints and skulls, and I stood up, forgetting Gordy altogether. I could make out the rooftops and outbuildings of a place I'd seen before. It was what I found on Packard's Island in the Hudson River up north. What I mean was, an exact twin, or perhaps, the infernal original of the house. The trees and moss hanging everywhere like banshee hair. I came to the notion that this was no replica of Packard's Island, but indeed, the original. A thing bigger and more real even than that hellborn place. A sharp guttural cry and a loud splash from behind me broke my thoughts, and I turned to see that Gordy was gone. I rushed to where he'd been standing and saw his rifle on the deck. Something was dragging him slowly down into the black waters, and then he was gone. Some part of me hoped it was a gator. The tug continued sailing on toward the island, as all I knew about the last six months faded like a mirage. The boat ran aground not far from the main house. All I could do was stare dumbfounded at that dark fortress of unfathomable proportion, identical in every way to the Packard place with the naked eye. This house had more places to it than the eye can normally see unaided by the tools of the hex trade. While the Packard house in New York had just a normal root cellar, using the site, I could make out a subterranean breach much deeper and a whole lot older than the house itself. One that coiled into a tangled knot of vertical shafts down into the earth, like the roots of a mess of rotted teeth. But that's not what caused my mind to reel. It was the attic. Packard's New York place had an attic all right, but this place was crowned with the spires and branches of attics that climbed through the trees like a crown into the very sky itself and disappeared up amongst the stars themselves in some veiled and unmanifest way. It was a spectacle that would change a man forever, and I knew that if I survived this night, I would never be the same. The tall, black iron gates of that palace of celestial strange, thick with ever more floating moss that waved in the breeze like seaweed, swung open, and a small cluster of small figures descended the staircase and ran toward me. They were little girls, no more than seven or eight in appearance, with long matted yellow hair and torn filthy nightgowns the same vile imps I'd seen on Packard's Island that had made their feast on the corpse of Tobias Packard, things the librarian had dispatched back to wherever they'd come from, using nothing but an ice hook. Two of them took me by the hand and led me into the foyer of that crumbling great hall. As soon as I was through the door, I started counting my paces. This was for two reasons. One, it helped me keep track of where I was and places that slid back and forth between the real world and someplace else. And it helped to keep me sane when I might be tempted to another course. All I did was set a part of my mind to counting and keeping track. 
The house was dark and all done up in a carved paneled wood of a type a darn sight swankier than its offshoot on Packard's Island up north. The size was of a scale beyond anything necessary for even the statuesque frame of Tobias with his damn near seven feet. All I could do was gaze on in amazement at the spectacle. We entered the main body of the house and entered a vast round room flanked on all sides by what to my horror, I realized were the mummified forms of countless men, women, and children. They were all naked and leathery, browned up like old wood. I could see the fresh tears pouring from their eyes, and those eyes followed me as I passed among them, raining down on me a kind of pity. I saw faces I knew, too. Faces from school, from my growing up years. I was about to look away when I saw my mother, old and withered like the rest, dead obviously many years. This caused me to think back and wonder just who the hell called me, requesting I go to Hudson to watch over old Leviathan, somebody that sounded just like my mother. I had no idea if I was getting out of there, but I was just full of myself enough to think I'd find a way. That's when I heard the voice in my head was Doug, my old partner, Doug Cartwright, the reason I'd walked willingly into this viper's den when, back in Hudson, I'd been about to turn tail and wash my hands of the librarian and all his minions. Of course, I hadn't, and sure as shit I wouldn't, but I'd wanted to, and probably would want to again, and again. Frank, Doug was screaming. I'm here. And then I saw him up ahead plugged up on the wall with the rest of them like trophies of an evil kill. All I could hear from my mother was mindless gibberish, a kind of sad whimpering. I hadn't seen her in almost six years, but it still made me grieve some to see her like this. We'd never got on much when I was a kid, me taking up with Doug and his mama's people like I did, as was natural to me, and her being all tied up with them godbotherers like she was, So things being the way they were, we just kind of left each other alone. I found my way at Mama Cartwright's knee and cried into her apron when I had a mind to, and no one else was looking. But she was still my mother, and dead to rights, I had to get her out of this. Doug was my oldest friend, and I'd made a promise to his mama to bring him out of here too, no matter what else happened. Even if I ended up hanging on that wall by a nail, mine were getting free tonight, one way or another. That was my vow. The vow of a juju man of Louisiana, born and bred, even if I was just a blanc. This kind of talk in my mind brought me around and set me to what I had to do. The little girl things, haints of the lowest and most despicable order of conjure, and their long bloody teeth and mad black eyes guided me to a place where I sat down among a number of other natural folks who seemed stoned or gone mad as they sat and weaved back and forth with their eyes half shut. The only source of light was red candles, spirit lamps, flaming old braziers filled with God knows what, and hex pots, each screaming with agony and spilling oily yellow smoke all over the place. In the center of the room was a huge altar, 
with more smoking braziers and piles of burning herbs and other stuff that didn't smell so good as the herbs. There was a figure facing the altar who slowly turned to greet the congregation as the little girl things took their place amongst the bevy of their kind. It was a priest, a Catholic priest, who turned and faced us, his face jubilant and grinning like a madman in some kind of ecstasy that made my face turn red, and I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. I didn't dare. I knew that face, and it sure wasn't Amity Philippe Packard. It was Father Matthias Lacroix, probably the biggest single thing that turned me off the church of my mother. All us kids used to laugh about Father Matthias, old even then, and long known for wanting to get it all up in your clothes with his hot, sticky hands. It seemed natural somehow that he'd end up here, and I wondered if he was serving at this particular altar even back then. My arrival seemed to signal the beginning of the rite. Matthias's voice echoed through the cavernous temple room, whose ceiling must have been at least 50 feet above our heads. This gave me pause to recall back on what the outside of the place had looked like. Children of the most ancient lord, he boomed lovingly, his hands and fingers splayed out toward them, tears streaming down his cheeks. My blessed hour has come. Behold, my sacrifice, the first of many yet to come in the service of the first and last of his kind and sole survivor of all known kin, the star and the snake that swallows its tail. Behold my sacrifice, Lord. Father Matthias screamed and threw off his robe, where he stood naked and corpulent, his flesh like that of a great white slug. Behold my sacrifice. The little girls, hundreds of them now, surged toward him as a sighing wave, circling him, chanting in their sing-song way. I watched in revulsion as Father Matthias's belly opened up like a great gaping mouth, and he screamed in some mingling of mortal agony and unspeakable delight. Then the mouth gaped open, farther and farther, and his body split in half and folded over on itself the corpulent mass transforming into a great white hermaphroditic bull, its horns inverted and piercing its skull, the blood pouring down over the great grizzled head. Come to the sacrament, children of the Lord, the star and the snake. Feast on the flesh he has given you, that he and I might be one in shame, he bellowed through his ruined mouth. I take of this my flesh, he screamed, and as one, the girls rushed to obey. They fell upon the creature, their bloody mouths and long dagger-like fingernails ripping him to pieces. The brutal grunting and sloshing of their feasting rose as an infernal symphony as his steaming innards splashed onto the floor. I must have conked out for a minute or two because when I came to, the little girls were just gobbling up the last of their vile feast and wiping their lips on each other's hair. It was a real sight. I was not tied or bound in any way and was looking for a way to cause some kind of diversion so I could set this place alight. Before I could secure a plan, there was a thunderous cracking sound overhead. 
whatever it was. I knew it was big. I looked up as the ceiling of the place ripped open and peeled back like a can of sardines, and everything slid sideways as I was swallowed up in that deja vu thing. And it all started to make some kind of crazy sense. Old Father Matthias was not Amadie Philippe. I'd known that all along. But when that damn starfish-headed thing peered down at me through the hole in the ceiling and started grabbing for me with its claws, I knew I had to move. This thing, the thing I'd first seen back in the offices of Cartwright and Enfield that got this whole train wreck rolling, was Amadie Philippe. The star and the snake that swallowed its tail, first and last of its kind, and the last of all known kin. And he was slithering in through the hole in the roof, his huge, long tail gliding down the wall and leaving a slug's glistening trail about thirty feet wide. Time slowed way down, as it does when the touch comes on me. That sweet touch of the beyond the by and by that told me things and guided me like a pup to his mother's teat. They say you cut a starfish into a hundred pieces and all you got left is a hundred baby starfish. This thing towering over me, whose fortress had its eye teeth down into the bowels of the earth and its crown out there someplace among the stars, was what had taken Doug and planted him here on the wall, like a buck's head, and my mama too, and all these other folks going back to how long nobody knew. These little, filthy girls, here and back on Packard's Island, were seeds, maggots falling off the hole, flecks of starfish meat that would grow into worms on a hook to lure people here like Father Matthias and Gordy Gidry to do their bidding, and later serve as a feast for even more of the little white girls. This thing had set me on the path to Hudson, an old Leviathan Roman and Vernon Fish, his acolytes and God knows what. It had sent me straight to the arms of the librarian too, its enemy, and lured me back down here to the beginning of it all, with my buddy Doug as bait. I knew there wasn't going to be no end to this, as we puny humans don't end these kinds of players on the big stage. But I did know I was going to do my damnedest to make a real mess of things here, or, at the very least, destroy Mama's and Doug's sad remains, even if I died trying, as I figured I probably would. Before I could make a break for it, what sounded like a massive rain of hail started battering down on what was left of the roof. The specter of old Amity looked up, the points of his head where his eyes were snaking around to see what was going on. That sound couldn't have been hail. It was too damn loud, and parts of the roof were starting to crumble around the Amity thing's head. But he was distracted, and that was all I needed. I made a run for the braziers, tipping them over. Something black flew past me, then another, and another, and soon... I could barely stand amidst the tornado of black that was streaming in at terrific speed through the front door that hung open, battered down by some awful force. Crows. It was crows. But I'd never seen crows this big before, and there was way more than five of them. From the looks of it, there was hundreds of them, each the size of a grown man and bearing down on the maggoty white little girl things with talons and beaks 
ripping and tearing everything to shreds that looked like it might be some kind of flesh. The noise of the crow's war screeches was music to my ears, and I thought it would make me deaf before it was over, but that was no price too big to win this here thing. I started knocking over anything that was already smoking, and burning oil was flowing everywhere like it was alive, snaking up the walls and catching the leathery corpses of fire, where they too started screaming with joy for finally being released. I climbed onto a table and dragged down my mother's living corpse and kissed her quickly goodbye and tossed her onto the flames before she even saw it was me. Then I went and got Doug down. His eyes said he knew and was grateful. You took your time, old buddy, but glad to see you made it. Now, do what you gotta do, he yelled in my head, and then I did it knowing the Doug in my hands was just earthly remains, and the Doug talking in my head was my pal, and that would never get taken away from me. The screams of the dying humans who'd been part of Amity's cult and would have ended up the feast of those little girl things was something I had to shut my mind to. I was doing them a service, freeing them from something no human should ever go through. The screams of the little girl things, well, that was a kind of music to my ears and I savored it, and always would in my memory. As I ran down the hall toward the front door, leaving the deafening roar of the dying and screaming girl monsters behind me, I saw the hall was lined both sides by rows of tall black figures, silent crows at least eight feet tall, their wings pressed to their bodies, heads bowed as if in silent prayer of whatever sort they might engage in. To the last of them, They nodded to me as I passed. A tall figure in a long black coat and top hat came through the door and paused a moment before striding down the hall like he owned the place. It was the Baron Samdi, with the white skeletal bones and dapper cut of the 19th century velvet morning suit and ebony walking cane. The grin of the death's head across what was both a remarkably handsome face and a specter of mortal dread widened as he saw me. Tipping his hat, he passed me by without a word. By rights, he did own the place, as he owned any place of death, whether of mass carnage or solitary lonely demise. I ran down to Gordy's tug, relieved it was still there where I'd left it. I jumped in and fired the thing up, and then pulled her around and headed back up the way we'd come as fast as I could flog that engine. The smoke still rose from the ruined house, but I knew it would somehow rebuild itself up again in time. The sounds of carnage and the flapping of huge unnatural wings took a long time to fade in the background as I drew nearer to the clean waters. I finally turned back towards the Big Easy, grateful that my crows had flown and brought so many of their friends with them. I went straight to Martine's, where she and Maurice were waiting a light in the window as a vigil. I staggered onto the front porch, and they dragged me inside. The two of them bathed the filth and blood off me. Then they did certain rites over me and put me in bed. I remembered none of this, but they told me later. Before I left to head back up the Hudson, Martine shoved a parcel into my coat pocket and told me to look at it later, and I nodded, knowing full well how things were done among the folk. On the train back home, I took out the parcel wrapped in brown paper 
and opened it. It was a book, and there was a note inside. It read, You did yourself good, my son of another mama. You done me proud. My boy's home with me now, and he passes on his regards, though I suspect you can hear him yourself, as you shall from time to time. We'll both be watching out, talking in your ear when you need it, and making sure them crows don't get out of line or drink too much. You gotta watch them. They take to drink too easy. This book in your hands is for the librarian. You're the first one to come here looking for it for the right reasons, and the first one to survive the trials of Amadie Philippe. I ain't got no book for you, Frankie. That was just the librarian funnin' with you like he do. But then again, perhaps not. You ask him about it. He's always got himself something fancy to say on such things. With the mark and the vive and the name of Marie Laveau, she watches out for her own. Your mama caught right. It was ciphered in Martine's hand, with a little old-fashioned squiggle to the letters. I knew how that worked, too. Mama rode Martine the same as the Baron did, and like Erzuli Freda did the time she made me fall in love for all time with Martine. But I was tired, and I was finally headed home. I'd only been in New Orleans for two days, but it felt like an eternity. Postscript About a week later, I lay stretched out on the old sagging maroon velvet couch in the librarian's office, hands behind my head and my feet crossed. I'd never felt this good in here, always hungry as I was for more of that weird shit. But now, I finally felt like I'd earned my place here. So, you think you have it all figured out now, do you? The librarian said, chuckling in that self-satisfied, know-it-all way that always made me nervous. Only this time, it didn't. I sat up and looked at him square in the eye and started laughing. (laughs) Yeah, I do. I got it all figured out, I said, drawing my words out, bristling and pleased with myself. Well, let's have it then. I don't have all day, he boomed. There's things to be done that require our attention. Important things, and I don't have time for your little games. Now out with it, he demanded. I could see he was really enjoying this, and for the first time ever, I could see an almost hopefulness in his eyes that I really did have it all figured out, and he was glad to have me back here, whole and in one piece. Yeah, you got that book from Mama Cartwright. That was the book I went there to find. But old Amity didn't have a book. Or rather, I was the book I had to find in that place and carry out safe from the carnage. There was no other way I'd survive, there or here, marked by all I was, I added, mighty grateful to the five old codgers and their crow buddies who'd come to save my scratch from the fire. Very good, Mr. Enfield, very good indeed. I'm quite pleased to see you again, by the way. Now, chop chop, enough of that. No time to waste spinning our wheels and cooling our heels. There's something big brewing in Egypt. Now tell me. Have you ever heard of H.P. Lovecraft? 